Welcome to the Spinster Life Podcast. Today's episode is very exciting. I'm here with a friend of the show, Emma Duval, Millennial Emma on Instagram. She is the author of an upcoming book, and there are so many updates to this book. I cannot wait to hear about it. Thank you so much for being here, Emma. Hi, Amy. It's so exciting to be back. I'm so glad we're doing this. <laughs> I know. Okay, so I haven't even said what we're doing an episode about. So if you heard the last episode with Emma, which was about being child-free, she told us about her favorite spinster. Please correct me on the pronunciation. Marie Marvon. Yeah, pretty good. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I took high school French, so... <laughs> <laughs> so I can almost say some words. Marie was everything. She's a groundbreaking athlete, pilot, speaker, all around badass person. So we're going to talk about her life today. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the movie version of that because we both <laughs> cannot believe that there is not a movie about Marie right. already. Mm -hmm. I know. That was my first thought when I finished the book. It was like, where's the movie? <laughs> right. It's such an epic story, but we will get into that. Let's talk about you and your book. So you were doing a book about child-free women throughout history. Tell us a little right. bit about how, how it's evolved and kind of the direction that you're headed now. Right. So actually, I tried to center it first on single women who also had no children, just because marital records were easier to check than whether women might have children. History is so nuanced. I was like, how can I make this easy on myself at first? So I was like, okay, married or not married is usually in official records. So I started there, but I am focusing on, on single women who had no children because obviously there are single mothers and their history is also super interesting, but it's not mine to tell. And at first I was like, I just want to feature like a hundred or 130 women that I find fascinating with short biographies of their lives and digital portraits that I would be making. And I realized that maybe it would be more interesting to readers if there was some historical context to like, why does it seem like some centuries had more single women than others or countries or specific places? I'm thinking, for example, you know, Louisa May Alcott had a number of contemporaries who were also single in the northeast yeah. of the US. And I was just like, okay, maybe I can look at what's already existing and gather it because there is a lot that's been done. It's just usually very regional specific. So America or America and England, Europe. And I was just trying to find as many sources I could to really include all continents, knowing that some chapters would have a bit more information than others, but to show how universal women's choice to not be married or have children or women being forced to choose between married life and their passion or careers, that those ideas that we still feel today have existed for a long time and there's a reason why and well i'm not gonna say it's patriarchy but a little bit <laughs> I, I think <laughs> i think we could argue that it's solidly i i think the reason that we think that being unmarried was such a deviant thing is because of that patriarchal structure right. that's telling us like a family is a husband and a wife and their children and families exist in all kinds of other configurations and have throughout history but we're told that's the one that you want to slot yourself into. Exactly. And I think for that, Marie Marvin is so interesting because she lived at that time where there were a lot of changes, positive changes for women. But also, I feel like she was born a little, almost too early for some of her personality. I think she would have been so happy today if she had been able to be part of what we're doing and seeing and 
social media even I'm expressing child-free choice and all that <laughs> yeah I think she would have been happy about the child-free part because that was a huge part of her personality but yeah let's dive in on Marie so Marie was born in 1875 let's just put that in some historical context like what could women do what were women's lives like at that point in history and how she was so different from what the standard of femininity or standard of womanhood was at the time Exactly. It's it's not even that long ago when you, when you think about history on, a, on the scale of all of humanity. It's really not that long ago. No. But at the time she was born, women were still, at least French women, were still not allowed to wear pants. Yes, I, I'm. I'm pants. pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that U.S. women also were not allowed to wear pants. Oh yeah, I mean probably, which is wild to think about that around the time when she was a teenager or in her 20s is when women started to be allowed to wear pants if they were doing special activities that might require pants, like horse riding or riding a bicycle. Or but, climbing a mountain. Or climbing a mountain, <laughs> exactly. But there's, there's well, she's not even a contemporary because she died when Marie was young. But there's this famous French painter called Rosa Bonheur, and she's very famous for her animal painting horses and cows. And so she was really around all this livestock. And she was also like, she was part of the LGBT community and she was very rebellious for the time. And she was allowed to wear pants on the basis that she was around livestock, which was the way that the officials were like, well, we know we're not going to be able to stop you from wearing pants. So at least let's try to find a reason right. why we can allow you, which is right. Let's not set the so precedent limited. for other right. women to be able to exactly. wear pants. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds I mean it yeah, it's yeah, no, it does wild to me. It but. sounds crazy. It sounds mm -hmm. absolute like what do they think was gonna happen if women had two more seams in their garments? Yeah. It, it's yeah, exactly. And clothing seems almost superficial to a certain point. Women's fashion, but no, it's 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 no. an important part. But women in France were only allowed to vote in nineteen forty five. So that's a good I'm really bad at math. That's really yeah, that's good. like it's like 25 <laughs> years after the U.S. Right. It's it's way after the U.S. already, but it's it's we really even towards the end of Mahi's own, own life. Yeah, and you can see like okay, so no pants. Women weren't allowed to wear pants, basically not socially or legally. And then when you're married, your your financial freedom is limited. You're not allowed to withdraw funds from the bank. And no matter what, you're not allowed to vote. Like those are a lot of. Those are just a few examples of the massive limitations that were placed on women. Right. Um, like yeah. the, the legal, the, so the legal system, right. and then yeah. just the societal expectations of what a woman looks like, what femininity looks like, and like the consequences for not adhering to that standard. Yes, which are, if the, if, if the legal system was an iceberg, <laughs> the social aspects of being an outcast because you're not adhering to behavior is what's under the water like, yeah it's just it's immense it's and such that's a great what, metaphor yeah. <laughs> that's why women like marie are so inspired because they knew i would always say what they were risking but they knew what they were going against and yeah they were like no i i need to be authentic and live my life and i don't i'm not gonna care or i'm not gonna let other people dictate my life. Yeah. And that's pretty impressive. I mean, and let's make it clear too that Marie wasn't really a feminist. She mm -hmm. wasn't she wasn't an anti-feminist by any stretch of the imagination, but she also wasn't out there actively campaigning for women to get the right to vote. She wasn't out there really actively campaigning for women's rights beyond doing some of the things that she enjoyed. Uh, right. I know she was yes. like a huge advocate for teaching girls to swim. Yeah. And so I think it's it's in a way I think she was it's not to say she wasn't like an an 
a feminist activist. She was just being a feminist through what she was doing in her own life. But yeah, yeah she, she wasn't campaigning in what we think of, about when we think of the feminists at that time. So yeah, she was definitely in between. She didn't make that her identity, but also her whole life is like a rebellion against societal <laughs> expectations. Yeah. And she started from a pretty young age. She started when she was a child. Her father was very permissive. He was an active guy and he wanted her to do some of the things that he was doing. Yeah. And I think you find that in a few of these kind of unusual women is that they've had fathers or mothers or both parents who are more, as you say, permissive than people at the time. In Marie's case, I think it's related to the fact that she had siblings, brothers who had died early on. Her surviving brother was weak. He was frail. And her father basically was like, well, the child that's the most likely, you know, to enjoy the activities that I enjoy is she's my daughter. So I'm just going to make the best of it. And I'm going to, I'm going to show her all these things that I would have shown my son if he was at peak health, but he's not. And so yeah. I think it's interesting that she, in a way, because her brother was, you know, frail, weak, ill, that she was able to get that opportunity to experience more of a, an outdoorsy upbringing with her father and yeah. his hobbies. It's, it's like she sucked the life force from all of her other siblings. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Because <laughs> she was so, so vital and just so accomplished in, in everything. She wasn't just athletically accomplished. She was also a really good writer. And she's constantly learning and constantly picking up things. But let's start with the sports that she picked up in childhood. So she started with, correct me if I'm wrong, she started with swimming. Yes, I, I'm pretty sure that's how it started. I think swimming was her first love almost. She was active in bicycling pretty early on as well. And then it gets a little bit complicated for me because she just did so much. That it's yeah, she, <laughs> she did She did everything simultaneously. So I think martial more arts and circus. Like yeah. she trained at a circus and learned how to, you know, do whatever they do on horses when they somersaults. Right. Yeah, she, she was like martial the first, arts. She was like the first person to do a flip on a moving horse. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I mean, and she was, I think she was still in her teens when she did that. And it's just, and that's just like one line in the book. And that tells you how impressive her life is. It is actually overwhelming of all the sports that she did. So she moved um, winter sports as well. Yeah, she was very good in winter sports. What is it? Skiing. I think she did lodging even, like on a luge. I don't know how yeah. you say it. Luge. Yeah, we say luge. luge. <laughs> um, yeah, but like I she mean, didn't, that was one of those things that like this is just a person who was in command of her body that she didn't really practice. She'd never done it before. She thought it was kind of silly because people were getting wounded. It was very <laughs> dangerous at that point to go on something that was like hurtling downhill really, really fast on a patch of ice. It was dangerous. It still is, but it was even more dangerous at the time. But she was just like, okay, well, I guess you've convinced me and I'll give it a try. And she would just hop on and she would do it. Like she was the one steering the, the bobsled. Yeah. She'd never done it before. And she I, just- I think that's basically her life. You're like, this is a new activity, but it's it can be deadly or at least pretty dangerous. And she's like, I'm going to try it. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of I know, I was like, life. almost like an invitation, like an open invitation yeah. from her for her to do things like, oh, is it, I might die doing this? Cool. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> and again, at the time, at least when she was bored, women could engage in 
and sports, but in a limited number that were either related to health reasons like swimming, which is possibly why she even was started with that because that was seen as kind of appropriate for health reasons. There are a couple right. famous women like the swimmer Anna Kellerman or Gertrude Ederly. Those pioneer women started in swimming for because they for health reasons. So like that was acceptable health. Yes. Um, and or, and just safety yeah. to not drown. Right. Yes. And then anything that was seen as social outings like croquet, you know, and golfing. Right. So her taking up martial arts, circus training and winter sports is already outside of the bounds of expectations for a proper young lady at the time. Right, which she was. She was like upper middle class. Yes, she, she was. was. She wasn't rich by any means, but she also, she wasn't like coming from abject poverty. No, she, had, she was she had, pretty middle class, yeah. Yeah, I did want to talk about, you know, we're talking about the swimming and we were talking about women's clothing earlier. Swimming costumes for women were generally <laughs> like these like heavy wool things. They were just like fabric on fabric on fabric, like really heavy yeah. fabric. But Marie had an early bathing suit the way we think of bathing suits. Yeah, I can't imagine the, the scandal that it must have caused anytime women started to try and dress in clothing that would actually not make it easier for you to drown because that's all I think of when I see those heavy <laughs> bathing suits. No, women just, would, and they would. Women would drown. Well, they would yeah, get they bogged, would. They'd get bogged down by that fabric. Yeah, that she was just like, I can't. I look, I can't move in it. You're gonna make me something spectacular. And she had this like red unitard. I assume it resembles like what we would think of as a bathing suit today. I suppose so, and I guess that's why they called her the red amphibian. I'm guessing it's kind yeah. of um, But yeah, I, and I think that's interesting because I feel like a lot of the progress that women made in clothing almost comes from sport. Like women were like, I need to wear pants if I'm climbing mountains. Otherwise, I'm going to trip and fall to my desk. I need right. to re wear like modern style bathing suit. Otherwise, I'm going to drown. <laughs> like, right. They pushed for that in a way, not on purpose as like a feminist statement, but as like, I need to not die. <laughs> you need to yeah. let me change my right. closing. Just a very practical right. application. Just like, hey, I just, I want to do this thing. And I also want to not die. Yeah. And it, we have the solution. It's pants. So let's talk about Marie and mountain climbing. I think that's one of the areas where she really was like a huge pioneer. She was definitely a pioneer in, in mountain climbing. It was something that was really relatively recent at the time when she grew up. Uh, there's a famous mountain climber called Annie Smith Peck, and she was climbed the Matterhorn in like 1895. So that's when Marie would have been around 20. And it's not always easy to know because there was so many unclimbed mountains, but Marie was definitely one of the first to uh, reportedly climb a lot of those peaks throughout Europe, which is, again, really interesting because when you see the heights that those mountains are. It's pretty impressive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And they don't have like modern climbing gear. Right. Exactly. They don't, they don't have any safety gear. Not yeah. really. No. They had um, apparently nylon rope was like a huge step forward in mountain climbing. I learned this from the book. I don't just know this. Um, <laughs> but the ropes they were using um, would get really waterlogged and then they'd get really heavy. So they were basically useless for mountain climbing. Yeah. But they would. I mean, but that's what but that's all they had. Yeah, and again, as I said, no like no safety gear. And I think she barely escaped an avalanche at some point. Yes. And I'm sure there were many other times where she was near death experience. So, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, no. She like <laughs> literally ducked behind a rock as an avalanche hurtled toward her. 
Yeah. I just can't imagine doing that with the clothing of the time and without everything we have today. And it's yeah. just, yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah. And then also that expectation of here's a woman. She should be the helpless damsel in distress. Yes. <laughs> saying, help me, please save me. And instead she's just saving herself. And I think yeah. she, I think she saved one of the people she was hiking with too. Oh, probably. She was always saving other people. And she was yeah. always, <laughs> yeah. But it, I, I feel like that's an obvious, well, she remained single over her whole life, but I feel like a lot of these pioneering women, especially in mountain climbing, were either single their whole lives or at least single at the time when they did that. Because right. once you get married, it's like, no way are you climbing a mountain. Now you're, you're a married I, wife. <laughs> yes. And you, and you are oh, a vessel for children and we must yes. protect that. Your, yeah. your domain is the home. So you should stay there. Yeah. And it would be a shame on your husband if people knew his right. wife was climbing yeah. mountains. What, what would they think of him? <laughs> yeah. Imagine the shame he lets his <laughs> wife do stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so given yeah. how outdoorsy she was, you can see why that was like already an incentive to never marry because she was like, I want to climb mountains. And I'm, <laughs> if I get right. married, I'm probably going to be pressured to stop. Yeah. You had talked about Marie saving a lot of people. And that's another direction that her life went is she did go to school. She became a, a trained nurse and she became yeah. a surgical assistant. Yes. It seemed that part of her life is, is also very impressive and not something that we have a lot of personal notes on her feelings about it. But from the book, it seems like she really admired Florence Nightingale and the work that Florence Nightingale had done, who was like the pioneer of what we consider today modern nursing. And she she trained as a nurse. And then when World War One hit, she joined the Red Cross to be active and with her skills and be helpful. And she did it again in World War Two. Yeah, it's like she's constantly developing new skills and using those skills to help other people. Again, like being a nurse and close to the front like she was, because she also, uh, at some point, very briefly dressed as a man to be able to fight on the front. And Yeah. And, yeah like, like she, I... I, I know, she exactly wanted to, like, off. get yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just, I... Yeah, <laughs> I have right. no words because it's just, everything Everything she did is, is as impressive, as amazing, and it's almost always done for the betterment of humanity i dare say um yeah. yeah no i think that's i think she um and we'll talk a little bit more about her personality too that she had a lot of self-confidence and most of it was pretty well deserved that she was a really accomplished person that she could do pretty much anything she ever put her mind to doing so she would have probably thought like yes i'm climbing this mountain in the name of france and and i'm paving the path for other mountaineers to climb this mountain yeah, exactly. Even when she, at some point, I think it was probably in World War II, she used her mountain ski, I think it was skiing skills, to direct a number of soldiers who needed to be helped, to direct them through like the mountain chain and to safer places. Any skill she had, she utilized it. She just, she never stopped. And it's, it's why it's a bit complicated to remember everything she did because it's... Yeah. Yeah. And, she and didn't and do one thing. It's like, right. 
She did everything. And then to talk about it in some kind of linear fashion is almost impossible because mm -hmm. she was doing all of these things like side by side. Right. So she's like going to nursing school. And then on the weekends, she's going up to some mountain resort and doing winter sports and then earning a bunch of awards there. She also, oh my God, she also studied under Sarah Bernhardt. Oh, did she? I forgot be, about that. Yeah. <laughs> to be, to, so she also had somewhat of a career as an actress. Oh man, that, that completely slipped my mind. See, that's just... <laughs> well, right, because it was like such a footnote. I can't imagine she was in like that many productions of anything because she was never in one place for very long, but that... No, like, but yeah, she was just very outgoing, trying everything. Even as I said, like training as a nurse and still at the time also winning sports award and also writing, being yeah. a sports journalist. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> writing stories about the records that she just set. She was bouncing from one activity to the other. I mean, I'm pretty sure yeah. journalist work is how she got into aviation, right? She was invited on a hot air balloon and she was like, yeah. I love this. <laughs> I'm going to start doing this. And then a few years later, she was the first woman to pilot a hot air balloon between France and England with a male passenger, but she did everything. And it's just yeah. like, yeah, she was just unstoppable. She was. Yeah, let's talk about the aviation part of it, because I think that's one of the things that she is most remembered for, maybe within France. And at the time that she was around and kicking and doing stuff, she was very well known internationally. Yeah, which is why it's surprising that, you know, we haven't heard more about her until I feel like until this book came out. It seems like she was really present, as you say, in, in international newspaper, not just within the confines of France. Yeah. But it's also not surprising given that she, if she wasn't the first woman to do something, she was one of the first. She was like one of the first women to, worldwide to get a driving license. She yeah. was one of the first women to get into aviation. So not just hot air balloons, but also airplanes. She was a great at it because like, she never got into an accident, I think, or at least not a major one. Yeah, so, yeah one, of her, one of her records was for the most safe landings or the most successful right. landings. <laughs> yeah, because she, so, loved, she yeah. loved her records. She loves to set a record. Yeah, I think she I think she's considered one of the most awarded women in France in terms of sport, at least sports, possibly also, I'm guessing, military. <laughs> I'm not sure. But she has, I think, over 30 or 34 awards and nominations, just like high level ones. I'm not even yeah. talking about like <laughs> right, everything like, else. She's just constantly in service of people even though she was very much an extrovert, but she really didn't have a lot of close personal relationships. Yeah, it does seem like she was extroverted, but protective of her own, yeah, of her own life. I, it's hard to describe because I'm an introvert, so I don't know really how to describe. I'm, a, an <laughs> I'm also an introvert. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm also an introvert. And I know in the book, the author, Rosalie Maggio, she talks about how she was involved in all these really dangerous sports. And she saw friends like dying left and right. Mm -hmm. She went to funerals constantly. That just became a thing that she needed to do to protect herself. And I mean, I would understand why that would be, you know, that reaction to aviation if it had like almost 90% fatality rate, but I'm sure mountain climbing at the time also had, even though it's not. It had to have. And yeah, swimming. And it like had to all, every single one of those activities must have had a number of people because it was all kind of early stage in a way. Yeah. And maybe that's also what motivated her to be so helpful and humanitarian in being a nurse and being so active, like physically, personally involved during both world wars and inventing this ambulance airplane that she did in between the wars where she was like 
like with her knowledge of aviation and, and her knowledge of nursing and being on the front a little bit and active in, in the war, she was like, you know, we need to get these soldiers to safety and the best way would be aerial medical rescue. And she wasn't the only one to think about that at the time, but she didn't really try hard to develop prototypes and to talk about it, to be like, you know, you need to. Yeah. So uh, again, another way in which she was both like very inventive and pioneering, but not for her own benefit, for yeah, to be helpful. I love that she like took the things that she was passionate about and she just kind of smashed them together. Yeah. And it, it seems so obvious to us now, but at the time, military leaders would scoff. They're like, meh, this airplane thing, it's just a fad. It'll never, it'll never take off. Yeah. Not, <laughs> well, no, nice, pun nice pun. <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. Yeah. I think that's sometimes the, the trap we fall into when we're living today and looking back and we're like, well, of course, of course she could have done this. Of course, of course. But it's like, no, at, like at the time, there's a lot of pushback against yeah. some of the things she did. Yeah. Bicycling was associated with the suffragist movement, women's rights. You know, it had this feminist link. And there's a lot of pushback against women riding bicycles. Or like, it's going to affect their fertility. You know, they're like witches on broomsticks. Right. Like, this, <laughs> and that's just bicycling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, bicycling was a huge thing. We didn't even talk about Marie's love of the bicycles. That was kind of like another one of oh, her yeah. <laughs> lifelong loves because she did so many things. I, I do want to talk about the fact that she rode the Tour de France. Women were not allowed to participate in the Tour de France. And Marie, as always, was like, well, I want to do it. And so what she did, since she was not allowed to be an official participant, is she basically rode a short distance behind behind the man, but basically doing this unof unofficial tour de France along with them. And what's pretty amazing is that out of 114 male participants, I think only around 30 or so finished the full race. And she finished the race. So statistically, <laughs> statistically, <laughs> she beat a lot of these men. Yeah. And it's it's just one of those things where like, I'm so grateful for these women that bested men, <laughs> because that's the only way that I feel women were allowed to be more involved. It's like, oh, well, actually, look, these number of women keep beating records and even beating men's records. So I guess it's okay if women get more involved in that sport. So yeah, yeah just proving that like it's right. it, their uteruses aren't going to fall out. <laughs> yes. If they jump on a bike, like they're not all of a sudden going to turn into into men. The horror, the horror. Oh, yeah. I, it's crazy that the, um, the adjective of mannish was seen as like a threat. Uh, being yeah. a mannish woman at the time was like, oh, be careful. You don't want to get involved in the women's rights movement or you don't want to do sports. You might become mannish. Right. <laughs> um, that was like a huge threat for women. I feel like that never, that label was never really put on Marie. Yeah, it does seem like she was relatively accepted. And I wonder if that's because she, well, first of all, I mean, her talent was undeniable. So I think that really helped, obviously. Secondly, I think she was, there's not a ton of photos, but there are a few photos of her dressing in a more mm, typical feminine attire. And I think that probably helped as well compared to some other women who might have been going against the grain who were less, even less traditional, like women who were openly, you know, lesbian or, or, or really dressing like men more like the fact that she was able to ride this fine line in between pushing pushing barriers but also not too much in a way physically at least with her appearance i think 
helped. And I'm sure that the fact that she seems very charismatic and knew everybody <laughs> probably also that probably also helped. <laughs> right. And then having those journalistic connections so that yeah. the stories about her, the coverage about her is all about her mm -hmm. accomplishments. And every once in a while would focus on her looks. And like you said, they would call her charismatic or a handsome woman or whatever. You know, they would talk about like how beautiful and charming she was. And of course, the media is responsible for one of her nicknames, the fiance of oh, danger. Yes. yes. Which... I always thought it was kind of a great nickname, but I think you raise a really good point in the fact that it still links her to a status related to a masculine entity. Yeah, right? That if she's not, she's obviously not going to get married to a man. That was very obvious to everybody, but she still had to be married to something. Right. There yeah, and I that. hadn't thought about that, but I think that's a very... Point. Well, and I get it because it is like it's a great phrase, the fiance of danger, like you're wed to danger. But then, yeah, if you look at that, the fiance, the going to be married to danger, why does she yeah. have to be married at all? I don't remember any nicknames for like male athletes or, you know, daredevils at the time, but I'm sure none of them were called the fiance because it works both ways. The fiance of, you know, like I don't right. think I've ever heard a man characterized in that way so i think no, it's a like charles Lindbergh was lucky lindy like he wasn't it was right it wasn't yeah, anything about his relationship to anybody else and her nickname yeah. was about her relationship to something, something. And, yeah yeah and and that's something that she complained about when other journalists were like so tell us about your love life you know she's yeah. like stop talking about my love life that's personal let's talk about my accomplishments what i'm doing for the betterment of people what i'm doing to bring honor in a way to france let's talk about that and yeah. there's a few interviews that i mentioned in the book where you can feel that she's getting frustrated and and rightly so but it's interesting that she was i find it fascinating that she was confident enough that to push back on those questions and to be like, I'm not going to talk about that because I don't feel like it's relevant to what I'm doing. And that was like a hundred years ago. And I think it's a very powerful thing to say because I, even today, I, I think a lot of, I mean, you see actresses, you know, complains about being asked, like, like was it Carl Johansson being asked about like her diet when she was in Marvel or Jennifer Aniston constantly being asked about relationships right, are you going to have babies or, yeah. yeah. So still today, these high caliber actresses cannot escape that. And to think that Marie Marvin in like 1920 or whenever those interviews were done was like, <laughs> stop it. Stop right, right just there. seriously, just stop it. Yeah, I am more, uh, I'm more than a whoop. I'm more than a wife. I am a human and a great one at that. <laughs> yeah, so let's, yeah, so let's talk about, let's talk about what's next for me. Yeah, no, this is absolutely still true because, you know, I have a podcast about spinsters and sometimes historical ones. And I will research if someone's a spinster. And usually those results, like is so-and-so married? Those are the top like Google results that mm. pop up in that like auto-populate yeah. bar. That's interesting. Like, across yeah. the board. And I don't know if it's that way for men. I guess I haven't, I haven't looked to to test this theory, but that is one of the first things that like people try and find out about, about a famous woman is, was she married? Yeah. <laughs> Which, you and, know, good for me, good for me, because I want to know these things, but... Right, right, right. <laughs> but not really relevant to maybe someone else who's researching Yeah, I, I feel the same way, because, like, I think you and I are both focused on this kind of marital status and children are not having children, but because it's something that's so 
pressured onto women, but most people wouldn't necessarily. Right. Most people don't need to. Yes. Right. They're not trying to make a point about it. They're just like, (laughs) they're just like, well, what's, what's this good woman and her husband? Like they're trying to slot her neatly into their idea of what a woman is, or they're being Mm -hmm. creepy and they're like, well, she's single. Maybe I've got a chance. (laughs) Could be that too. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> or Murray, how many, she must have had a lot of, I mean, her, was it a nephew or somebody who was kind of close to her did say that she was very private, so they didn't know much about her love life, but she did have a lot of admirers, which I don't, it doesn't surprise me. It does um, not surprise me either. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the photographs from later in her life, just because of like how, you know, the technology of photo- photography had evolved so that you could take more of like a candid snapshot mm-hmm. instead of like a portrait where you have to sit there for a few minutes. She is so animated. She's just so yeah. like full of life. Like you can, in, in some of these pictures, you can just like, you're just like, I, I can see who that is. And yes, I mm-hmm. would be drawn to that person because of her like pure joy in being alive. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. She was probably on top of being charismatic, almost maybe, what is it, do you say, magnetic? Yeah. 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 Just from those few photographs Mm -hmm. rendered in really shitty black and white in this book, but that that she's just, yeah, she's just glowing. You're like, yeah, I I want to know about her. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Yeah. So yeah, I can definitely see a lot of men being drawn to her. And yeah, I, I... like on one hand, sure, I'm like really curious about how she conducted these relationships in an era when it was taboo to have sex with somebody that you weren't married to or that you weren't engaged to. Yeah, I thought about the same thing. And I, I'm pretty sure that the, whoever talks very briefly about her love life does say that her attraction was to men. Like we're not erasing <laughs> anybody's sexuality. I think it was pretty well established that she was attracted to men, which is again, why it makes it so interesting that she went against the expectations of getting married. She did say that she was opposed to like marriage as an institution, but like mm-hmm. just being in that kind of relationship wasn't necessarily something that she was opposed to. Right, exactly. I I wonder like if it was that she never met a man who was supportive enough. I mean, there were some, we've read about some, but it's like maybe she just never felt that she could trust a man enough to become yeah. linked that way with everything that it means behind yes. legal. Well, right, and yeah, especially the financial aspect. Yeah. She did not have a lot of money, but no. at least there was no one else controlling it and she it could was, yeah, she, she could free. Right, she was free to to travel and she was free to you know, take on whatever other pursuits and no man could get a hold of whatever money she she did get or stumble into or get from people. Or the other possibility is that being free-spirited extended to her love life and she just had no interest, you know, in settling down with one person. Like, I could also see that given how she's, you know... Well, yeah, she's all over the place. That How boring (laughs) would that be for somebody like me? Exactly. (laughs) I mean... Who knows? Maybe she was just not into long-term monogamous relationships, which yeah. like, I could see that as well. I could see that, yeah, definitely. She also sort of viewed soldiers especially as like kind of her brothers. She, all these medical uh, transport ideas, her air ambulance, and some of the other things that she did were for the soldiers. And she did really feel an affinity towards them. I don't think that she, I mean, obviously she was one for, for a short mm-hmm. time. She, she did dress up as a man and was like active in the trenches. And then she did fly a bombing mission. 
Yeah. She has that sense of brotherhood, sisterhood with the communities that she was engaged with. I think you also see that with the aviation community. And I think with anything that's related to the military, I don't think it's dated, but I feel like she was a very patriotic woman. Um, Yeah. Because the book mentions that only recently was it really proven that she was heavily involved in the resistance movement, which again, something that something dangerous. And she was using her cover as like a journalist and almost like a famous spokesperson going around to talk about aerial medical evacuation. She was using her platform as like a reason to be allowed to go to different countries and using her network and that freedom of movement in a way during the wars to pass on information or like to be gathering intelligence, I'm guessing. Like she was, yeah, she was very active in in that level of that resistance, not necessarily those who were like on the ground fighting, but she was so important that she did receive a couple medals, at least one, I think one for both wars from the French government, thanking her for her service. It just, and then it, that's another layer of like, okay, so she was, she helped during the war. She was a nurse. She was on the front. She did these things for wounded soldiers. She promoted <laughs> aerial medical evacuation. Oh, and she was also involved in the resistance network. It's like right. she really did every single thing you could do during the war to yeah. help her country. So I think it probably, and again, like you mentioned, she wasn't very wealthy. And I think it's probably because that wasn't her focus, right? It wasn't to be famous or rich. It was I think it was it was a little bit to be famous, but yeah, it was never oh, to well, be yeah famous in the sense of being recognized for her accomplishment. I guess yes, not yeah um, right yeah. not yeah not she in didn't... a socialite way. <laughs> no, and she was a socialite. Yeah, she. I guess I guess she was through her accomplishments, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She right. was connected she wasn't, to all these people. Yeah, she because... wasn't like right. She wasn't like climbing the social ladder. Yeah. she wasn't like well, if I know so and so, well then I'll get yeah, exactly. to know so and so. She was very proud of the high-level people that she knew. Yeah, she's like a very interesting character there. Definitely yeah, not me- definitely not a stereotype of, no. you know, the, the star fucker personality who's like, well, I met, you know, General <laughs> yeah. What's-His-Face one time and I met... Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I feel like she might have felt a little bit outcast from being so, so very different, I think, than a lot of people. And like, where did she fit in society at the time right. when, I mean, at the early early 1900s in France was the end of La, La Belle Book. The women were either married wives at home, courtesans, or <laughs> third option, which was <laughs> what Marie fell into. But I, I just don't know how many women she could relate to. Like how many women were like her? It probably was lonely in that sense. Right. That no one was like, exactly like her. Yeah. Because she was friends with a lot of female pilots. And Mm -hmm. that's all I read about in the book, really. I don't know if she was friends with other, like, female cyclists or female swimmers or anything like that. I know she definitely had that camaraderie with other pilots and definitely wanted there to be, like, lots of female pilots. I'm pretty sure she said something about, like, women being, like, very uniquely suited to being good Mm -hmm. at driving and being good at piloting. Yes. Yeah. So... I also wonder if part of it is that a lot of the women she might have met when, let's say she was in her 20s, did end up getting married and Mm -hmm. had to give up being as active as she was. And so you might not end up with a lot of recognizable names because (laughs) 
Well, because they just stopped or became wives of. And she wrote an article about the wives of. She wrote a whole article highlighting that women who were married to important, famous men of the time weren't just wives of. Like, yeah. they were individuals. And I think that's representative of, you know, all of that conflict that still exists today of, yeah, that you're put into, if you're married, you're and to somebody famous or recognizable, you immediately become just the wife of. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, like a, there's a there's a sketch about that trope of casting these really amazing actresses in these supporting roles. They're literally just the wife and they try and <laughs> give them something to do. Yeah. There's a sketch where it's just like all these amazing actresses and they're just on the <laughs> phone, like having a conversation either with or about their husbands. They were probably brilliant in their own right, but then they became the misses. Yes, exactly. I mean, again, anybody who listens will be, well, well, what about Marie Curie? And I was like, yes, but those were like exceptions. Like the women right. that we do remember, either they had partners that were incredibly progressive for the time or recognized their wife's talents or, but yeah, not always. I'm pretty sure, you know, Einstein told his wife to like, Shh, let me, let me be yeah. a famous one. Like there's way more examples of women being like put down by spouses, unfortunately, right. then lifted up. Or or those those spouses that were the really the ones, the driving force. They were like the ones who wrote or edited the manuscript. They mm, were, yes. you know, they were the ones like doing all of these things, like that their husband's achievements wouldn't have been recognized without their contributions. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I remember hearing about women who did fight for their husband's work to be recognized for what it is, but then their recognition is forgotten until somebody decides to look into it because, yeah, because it's less known, it's less obvious. There's, yeah, it's harder to prove, I guess, when yeah. you don't have records of it. So, yeah, tough, tough stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't Marie. Marie, she was almost, and at times she was kind of almost disdainful of marriage. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I get why. I get why. Yeah, I, I get, I get why. Right. You and have to say it. It's like, it's much more interesting to me climbing mountains than cleaning dishes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, still applicable today, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think, again, I think when you and I talk about the issues with patriarchy and, and perception of single women or women without children, it's, it's not, it's not just, we're not angry at like women who choose to do that. It's just no. recognizing that there is a pattern of there being problems with it for women's own happiness almost. So yeah, I'm glad yeah. she spoke about it because then we today, a hundred years later can say, see, even a hundred years ago, right, there this was women. a problem and women spoke against it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. She's, she's pretty great. I should say she, she was really nonstop because even in her later years, she was still very active. Like even over the age of, 80, she was still, yeah, breaking records. I mean, she became licensed to fly helicopters at the age of 84 in 1959, which is probably a record. <laughs> um, I, I would yeah. imagine. I think even helicopter technology <laughs> was pretty new. There weren't even a lot of like regular pilots who were getting their exactly. helicopter licenses. And, and, and as I said, like bicycling was one of her biggest love and she was still known to, to bike hundreds of miles every year. And there's specifically one one like one trip that's mentioned in the book where she biked. It's 280 kilometers, which is around 175 miles at the age of 85. <laughs> yeah, that tells that's, you 
how but, uh, yeah, yeah like how much she loved bicycling i also liked mm -hmm. all those details uh, in the book about and the the book i don't even know if we mentioned the book marie marvant fiance of danger by rosalie maggio i think it's one of the only books that there is it is the only one and it's also pretty recent i think it's what two or three years old at most like and this just uh, i i now if you google her name more things pop up but they almost always the sources always refer back to this book I'm like that yeah. tells you how right. much research this person uncovered yeah mm -hmm. and how much was buried um, yes. But yeah, I loved the details in the book about the relationship. I think maybe the, one of the most enduring relationships of Marie's life was with her bicycle. <laughs> yes. Like, <laughs> like uh, uh, you know. Does she like, have a nickname for it at some point? Yeah, like, she did. Yeah. I think, was that one like Zephyrine or something? Yes. I think like the name it of it. But yeah, I feel like she had an, a nickname for it. And it was just like this like kind of clunky, like ugly old bicycle. And she would roll up to social events and she would just like park <laughs> it in the like cloakroom, like in the middle of somebody's wedding. She just like pushes her bike in and just leans it up against the wall. Yeah. I mean, again, they're a unique individual. And I, I mean, yes, absolutely in love with bicycling. And you mentioned the clunky bike and it makes me think like, when I think of bicycle, I think of modern bikes, but I have to remember that this is like, Decades yeah. ago, and bikes right. were probably kind of heavy, and yeah, yeah, they didn't have like as well. light yeah. alloy metals. Yeah, yeah they were exactly. probably like pretty, pretty solid. Yeah, yeah. So, again, the fact that she biked hundreds of miles constantly in her eighties is just a testimony of yeah, yeah, how incredible force. But I do like the imagery of her, <laughs> like you invite her to your wedding and she <laughs> rolls on a bike. It's just kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, and she like puts it kind of in the way. Yeah, there are a couple like passages about how she just like lean it up against, and people would like literally have to like like walk around it. Yeah, and she's just like, you want me here? The bike comes too. That's just the way it is. I mean, I'm sure she was a big personality and not always easy to get along with, but I think she could be forgiven for everything she did. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about her personality because as I was reading the book, the first couple chapters, they're kind of dry because they're just like names and places mm -hmm. and dates and meters and kilometers. They're just kind of statistics. But as we get into the book, there's more and more about Marie's yeah. and like her inner life and her personality and what makes her tick, which is much more interesting to me. Yes, and I think the author did a great job because I don't think, as I said, I don't think many personal records of her own expression exist. So she yeah. really was able to paint a detailed portrait of Mary based on, you know, existing interviews and the way she lived her life. Like, if she did this, it must have meant because she felt this. It's really interesting yeah. to see. Obviously, we mentioned she was an extrovert. I think that's she, pretty clear. Yeah, I don't think she could have done what she right. could have if she was an introvert. Like I read the book and I'm like, oh, there's too many people. There's too many things. So I, I, <laughs> I don't think she could have been an introvert at all. I think that was no. pretty clear. That's, yeah. uh, I still think she was very, very observant and thought a lot about what she was going to do. Like clearly she was what sometimes in the moment, but I think her life is also very, it's all over the place, but almost in a way that makes a lot of sense, especially when you look yeah. back. So I think that fits the kind of observant type and logic and reason. So that's why I think she was like, what ESTP, the entrepreneur. And, and when I looked it up specifically to see like, what are 
Like what are specifics about the type that might make me feel like it does really hit her is that they refer to those people as dynamo personalities because of okay. their high energy. Yeah. And they're like often, Marie. <laughs> right. And they're often natural athletes. <laughs> so well, I, like, ah, I think it's that one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It is. It's insane. Like how, how gifted she was in using her body. To me, it didn't sound like she really practiced sports. Like in the way that most people think about practicing sports. She yes, just kind of like learn in the moment, learn by doing and learn like under pressure too. Yeah. And there there has to be a part of innate talent to that, definitely. And knowing your body. And I, that's probably why she was still able to bike like a ton when she was in her 80s. It's probably because she had a really, a really good connection with her body. And I'm saying that as somebody who was like suffering with chronic pain and I feel like I never know what my body's going to feel like from one day or the other. So <laughs> I admire the fact that she seems to be able to keep herself in that kind of constantly yeah. ongoing athleticism. Yeah. It's right. And just push back against or just, you know, be able to get through maybe mm -hmm. some negative sensations that her body was giving her. There's also like she wasn't, she never really injured herself. Not, you know. Yeah. Not, um, yeah, not, not seriously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, she was, I think they mentioned one illness where she got like a bacterial infection that really threw yep. her. But yeah, I think, I think it says she missed what did she miss? Like one competition, I think in her lifetime due to yeah. illness. Yeah. Like, right. She never I, said, I just don't feel good. And I can't, I can't do this thing. One time. Yeah. yeah. One time, one time in whatever, 70 years, 80 or 60 years of competing and doing activities. Did she ever say, I'm too sick. I got to bow out of this one. Yeah. And actually, now that you mentioned, you know, that connection with her body, and maybe that's why she was so good at aviation. There's that, you know, when you're flying an airplane or something, flying something, I think you need to be really in touch with what you're, what's going on. And maybe that's why she was so good at that too. It's because she was really in in phase with her own body and by yeah. extension with the aircraft almost or cars or bicycles or, yes. or you know, yeah. she was just like she just liked driving things yeah <laughs> but yeah. yeah i think yeah you have to especially like those really old vehicles you really had to be in touch and like listen to what like the feedback yes. that, that 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 was giving you yeah again i say that as somebody who still always hits the curb <laughs> Going out of the supermarket, even though I go for <laughs> me, it's just, I, I do not possess that ability. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. So yeah, it's kind of magical. Yeah, I, maybe that's why it feels especially incredible to us is because yeah, right, I'm, not. I am the opposite of her. And so to me, she's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And just one note, like she was, she did have sort of an advantage to being able to accomplish all of these things. She was one of those people that needs like four hours of sleep maximum a night. She did not need a full eight hours. She'd sleep like one or two hours a night very frequently. Yeah, and that was just, again, that's probably very rare, I guess, amongst the general population. So it's, it's yeah, it's exceedingly rare. Like, yeah. I think, what, like one, one percent? <laughs> she, I think it all ties together. And every part of almost of her being and personality was meant to be this extraordinary person. And again, she was also a, a little bit lucky in the sense that she came of age at a time where those first had not been accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> so she was able to do them. I always think about how 
the massive difference when you look at like the first gymnastics Olympics and those what they do today. You know, and it's a there's a massive difference. But still, it's she still did those things first, and it's very commendable. And I just yeah, I think she I think that really brought a lot of joy to her life to get those achievements. But I I do feel like she would have been she would have enjoyed some of the perks women enjoy today. Yeah, but she probably wouldn't have been able to be that recognized athlete without going like doing a ton of training which she might have since her dad kind of i think she was swimming what by the age of four she was swimming like kilometers yeah. at a time like she was she 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 did have that kind of athletic training i guess not professional maybe right. she would have been <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's just it's not the picture of a professional athlete that we have now we have someone who goes and they do the same thing and they mm-hmm. master yeah, that exactly. one thing and she was I mean, and yes because these records didn't exist it was a lot easier for her to set them and seem as if she mastered the sport even if she hadn't put in all the practice just because of the novelty of all of these sports and there might not have been records you know before yeah before she started say, she still did all those things and yeah i mean and she didn't die i think that's i think that's how we can prove she's successful they were all very dangerous and she didn't die yeah yeah she look at like her wikipedia page i think it lists all the sports she was involved with and it's four or five lines just so naming everything (laughs) like you have to look at the list It's, it's kind of incredible we talk about swimming in general but i think there's also like kayaking and canoeing and like it was archery and what's it called when you you shoot a gun, but like laying down to hit like a, oh, like a like certain... skeet skeet shooting or something. Maybe maybe that's what it's called. I can't remember in English what it's called. But there's like there's a list of sports that she did. Like and yeah, and no matter what, that's I mean that's that's mind blowing to me that she was yeah. able to set records or do it well enough, as you say, to be recognized for what she did in almost every single one of those. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about why isn't Marie more well-known? Because I, you told me about her. I didn't even know she existed until you told me about her. Well, I think, unfortunately, it's it's a couple things. First of all, by the time she died, she had been a little bit forgotten. I think the shine of her accomplishments and the, war, the both wars had been passed 20 years ago and her, you know, her residence work wasn't known. So... I think the fact that her accomplishments were dated in a way by the time she passed away, like in 1963. And I also think it's the the fact that she died at a time where there was so much happening. I think that's what I mean. It's like she flipped under the radar in a way towards the end of her life because she wasn't able to be part of those massive changes that I think she would have been part of. She had like if you had moved her life like 10 years towards us. So I think she, it was just like almost a almost a wrong time, wrong place in a way is my feeling about it. If I think if she had died ten years earlier, she would have probably been a lot more remembered because it would have been closer to the time that she did all these things. If she had died ten years later, it's possible that she would have started to be recognized by the 1970s feminists who were starting to look at women's history. And I think it yeah, it was like a she died at a time where it could just it was it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She just, (laughs) she just died at the wrong time. I also read something in the book that was a a great theory that like a couple of great theories, one that she did so many things that she wasn't really the patron saint of any of them. So no group like really took her and kept telling her story. 
That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. And, and and she then, didn't and she didn't have any direct family members. Like she that's right. true that she didn't have children that were gonna go places to tell her story. That doesn't mean that she can have had friends or nephews or who did that. But it definitely to me plays a part, unfortunately, in women's history, when it's single women or women without children, it plays a part where you have no direct descendants that are I'm not gonna say keeping your legacy alive, but more like easier to to find for other people like you can be like oh yeah i just i found her obituary oh she has a, like a living son i'm gonna go talk to him like, right and get his memories yeah. of his mom yeah. and it also didn't help that all of her papers got thrown yeah. out yes so yeah. a lot of a lot of her her like all of the things that she collected throughout her life and she was a very avid collector she kept like every clipping and and autograph and every like pretty much everything she just she kept it her her whole life but that was all thrown out when she died i know that breaks my heart that she had kept such a good collection and it's, most of it is lost and that no, yeah nobody at the time thought that it would be a good thing to keep and yeah people had i think people i mean she died poor so i'm pretty sure at some point people had to actually fundraise and fight like the municipal governments to keep her headstone or Yes, they did. They had to found like form a foundation and raise money to keep her from getting kicked out of her burial plot. Yeah. They would have exhumed her and her whole family and just put them somewhere, I guess. So obviously, you know, it's I think if people aren't remembered at the time of their death, it can be hard to pull them out of obscurity. But I feel like when sometimes I, I Google her name, you know, and then she's like, I, there's a lot more even now than two years ago. And yeah. I'm hoping that, you know, she'll be able to come out of obscurity because some some historical women that we consider today have been through that. I'm thinking, you know, what is it? Henrietta Lacks with the book about how yeah. her cells influenced research. There was like this book and now her name is known or I think. Ada Lovelace and like there are some women that today I think we that are named a lot in women's history it wasn't the case 10 years ago so there's hope that maybe in 10 years so there will be a yeah. movie or something <laughs> yes yeah let's talk about a movie because how is she not a movie she kind oh. of she kind of was there is right. a silent film series called the perils of Pauline that was like a nod to yeah Marie which I, I think speaks to her popularity so it was uh, i think it was made in it for U- u.s audiences yeah um so it's interesting that they did this whole i would say it's like a mini series kind of short episodes there's a number of them in black and white silent about this young woman who i think she is just engaged at the start and she's like actually i feel like i need to do more stuff before i get married and then she goes into all these adventures and then her name is putting marva i think so like yes pauline marvin the spelling is different yeah of her last name but it's very clear yeah yeah and then like i I watched just part of one because yeah um they're kind of boring for modern audiences but they the first one is about like the balloon trip that maria took or it's inspired by that i mean it obviously she did enough things to inspire (laughs) a series even by today's standards like there's so much but it's to me given how many movies from this time have been lost it's wonderful that there are 
even a few surviving samples. Yeah. And it speaks again to the fact that, yeah, she had to be known because there's like, you know, there's like a black and white, was it, I don't know if it was MGM or another studio, but there's like a studio did, you know, use mini series about her. But that was like in 1915. So yeah. it's been over a hundred years and there has been nothing since. And that needs to be changed. That does need to be changed. Do you have any idea? I have some ideas. Do you have any oh, ideas of what that movie would look like? <laughs> I want to hear yours. Okay. Um, all right. So I'm thinking that it's a little bit in the vein of Forrest Gump, where okay. she's sitting somewhere and she's like telling somebody her story. So mm -hmm. we're, we're following her when she's like 80 and she's kind of feisty and she's well respected. But yet there are people who are like, who's that old lady? And people like, she was very important. That's Marie Marvel. She was, <laughs> you know, she's a, a French hero. Yeah. And I was thinking also like incorporating that ride when she was like 80. Oh, yeah. Where mm -hmm. she's like riding from, um, is it Paris just pronounced to Nancy? Nancy, yeah. Nancy. She's riding from Nancy to, to Paris and just like yeah. maybe like reliving her life. Oh, and then yeah. we start, you know, we show like the beginning of it with her father and maybe the acrobatics or the swimming or something. And then obviously like we show the balloon. Yes. Yeah. The, the, so uh, the big her balloon yeah. adventure. That's, mm -hmm. That obviously has to be a scene. And then, yeah, we just kind of like revisit highlights. Maybe it's some like fictional ceremony where Marie is receiving like a medal for oh, yeah. all of her, yeah. her exploits and yeah, presented to I her by that. like one of her, one of her friends that sort of, you know, was still in her life. One of her friends that didn't die. Some of the military A little bit of stuff. a big fish ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little bit like that. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, that's my idea. Yeah. That's my idea for the Marie Marvel movie. Well, I was going to go more of a mainstream mo action movie where you're like, okay, kind of like a storyline where you incorporate everything she's done, but not necessarily as like a timeline. For example, I think an easy way would be, let's say something around both either world wars and like at some point she's skiing, at some point she needs to, you know, fly an aircraft, like hint at all these things she's done, but more condensed than like, yeah, I was thinking like, what was it called? Uh, something, jung Jungle Boat with Emily Blunt and Dwayne Johnson. There's like- Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like jung Jungle Cruise? Jungle Cruise, that yeah. was it called. Like something yeah. in that vein where it's like, you know, she's obviously the main character and it's a lot of action, a little bit of comedy, just to hopefully appeal to a white audience. So it wouldn't be like nonfiction, like it wouldn't necessarily be like a documentary or as detailed as yours would be. It would be more like, let's just get people interested. In, yeah. <laughs> in she's she's more like a, she's not exactly, she's kind of a Bond, like a James Bond figure. Yeah. Yeah. I think she is. And she just, actually, she just like keeps getting into like situations and she gets in herself out of them. Ooh, that would actually be a really good one. Like a serious action movie. Yeah. That would be good too. Yeah. And you could even probably do something related to like a real file or, you know, a real thing that happened in the Resistance Network that she could have been, you know, part of. You could actually yeah. make it. Okay. Yeah. This one's yeah, good so too. <laughs> there, yes, there are ways to do this. If anyone has the means to get this done, let us know. Um, you also had an idea for something animated around Marie. Did you yes, did you have an idea of what that would look like? Well, I wasn't exactly sure. I was just like thinking, I, I love animated movie. Like I love the Hayao Miyazaki style. There's a, a number of French animators that are incredible. One is called Michel Oslo and he's done kind of these silhouette style. It's just like black silhouettes on colorful backgrounds. And I was just like, I was just more thinking about aesthetically 
this kind of like hand-drawn, like 2D style that would be very kid-oriented, but gorgeous to watch for adults, which is kind of like my favorite style of movie. So it's more of like the aesthetic and make making it whimsical. That would be like a whimsical version probably of her life. Yeah. I would totally watch that. <laughs> I would totally watch that. I, I also had an idea for like like a children's cartoon. Oh yeah. It's yeah. like a series. Like, oh like um her like oh what's this called the uh, where's Car Carmen what's her name? Carmen Where in San the world San is Carmen San Diego? <laughs> <laughs> yeah like <laughs> but with her instead. Yeah. Because what she did, I think she did like, what, 600 conferences through her life. I mean, she really, and yeah. she, she went around the world. So you really would have a lot of material to do something that would be right. Um, yep, based on her educational like, for kids. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah, just based on her travels. Yes. Yeah. Like she went, yeah, she went like all across the U.S. Yeah. Giving lectures. She Obviously um, Europe. North uh, Africa. Europe North Africa. Yeah. I'm not sure about Asia um, or Latin America. I think they said, she said in the book, Pakistan, either India or Pakistan. Yeah. So there, there would be enough, but it's, yeah. So there's a tons of ways. Actually, it's interesting that there's a really a number of ways you could envision telling her life. That's our next project. Um, <laughs> after, after Emma releases her book, then yeah, look for one of these projects. It's going <laughs> to, they're going to make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for talking about Marie with me. This was such a great episode. I can't believe she's not a movie. <laughs> That's gonna be weird. Marie Marvin's tagline. It's not the fiance of dangerous. I can't believe it's not a movie. <laughs> okay, great one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the new one. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me because she is absolutely one of my favorite women from history, probably because she encompasses so many things and such an incredible experience and such a unique place in time. And I feel like I could just talk about her for hours. <laughs> so, I, yes, yeah, I feel like, yeah, we could have gone for many hours. Maybe another episode will be in the works. <laughs> we'll let you know. Tell us where we can find you online. So I'm active on Instagram and Twitter at Millennial Emma. And then, yeah, those are basically the two that I'm active on. And I try to share modern women but also women from the past like i try to mix it up a little bit so hopefully you'll find something that <laughs> that is of interest to you yeah you give great instagram and any projects anything in the works that we should be on the lookout for well i have a a short participation in an upcoming book that i'm pretty excited about it's called no one talks about this stuff and it's edited by cat brown and it's a book on childlessness and infertility and loss and experiences of motherhood or non-motherhood. And I'm very excited that my essay has been accepted to talk about the historical perspectives on how women who don't or can't have children have been perceived. And so my point is to show that a lot of times childless women express that they have these negative feelings about their situation. And part of me always thinks it's like, because society has ingrained us to believe that you're less than if you can't have children. So you're like, you're an object of contempt if you can, or a scorn if you don't want children, but you're an object of pity if you can't have children. So no matter what, unless you're mother, you're not winning. And I'm trying to give this overview of, of you know, oh, look, like, and uh, whenever a couple hundred centuries ago, this is what was being said when 
women who can't have children are mentioned. And this is what medical professionals thought in the 19th century and kind of to show that it has been an ongoing thing that is not always completely outspoken. I feel like a lot of the time it's subdued, it's implied, but it's it's been there, in, especially in Western society, because that's what I know best. It's It's just been part of our value system for so long that you don't even realize hey, where do those feelings come from? Why am I feeling like I'm less than a woman if I can't have children? Well, because our literature, our, yeah, our literature especially tells us that and has tell, been telling us that for a century. So that's what I'm looking at and it should be coming out sometime in 2023. Amazing. I think that's such an important thing that child-free people can give to childless people and people that are struggling with infertility, breaking down this barrier around all of the stigma around not having kids. Yeah, and yeah. So they can so they can just deal with their own emotions and they don't have to deal with everything that society is is heaping on them. Yes, that's such a great point. And that's one area in which I feel like the child-free slash childless community connecting on that is so important to not see the other group as too different, but like actually let, let's let's help each other us child free will be screaming from the rooftops that you don't <laughs> deserve to know anything about your uterus and you can focus on you know coming to terms with your situation or moving past it or becoming a parent yeah. i don't know but just not feeling like you're burdened by these societal expectations and i yeah amen <laughs> once again thank you so much for being here this is such a great episode. Thank you so much to you. It was really nice. And and if you haven't, check out our first episode together. Yes. Um, it was yes. also a really good one. <laughs> it, oh, it was such a good one. We're child-free, <laughs> not childless. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.